0: This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And from the Herald and Calk News Studio, this is Ozarks at Large for Monday, May twenty 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis.
1: And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Ahead on today's show, we get ready for the Benville Film Festival, which gets underway in just under a month. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore speaks with Wendy Guerrero, president of the Benville Film Festival Foundation, to learn more about this year's installment of the festival. And in our second half hour, Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellum sits down with John Jetter, conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony, to tease us about what's ahead for the organization's 99th season.
0: But first, an Arkansas Court of Appeals, Divisions 2 and 4, on May 11th issued an opinion upholding and improving the state's net metering rate structure for customers with utility grid-tied solar systems. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports.
2: On May 11th, Judge Philip Whitaker upheld Arkansas's net metering rate structure for customers with grid-tied solar systems. Net metering allows private solar power producers to distribute excess energy Into the power grid for which they receive credits when they use it. Certain utilities in Arkansas have long sought to reduce net metering credit rates, claiming grid tied solar systems burden utility facilities, so they should be required to offset such costs. The Arkansas Court of Appeals decision, a majority ruling written by Judge Whitaker, upheld the higher rate for solar customers, which stems from an Arkansas Public Service Commission ruling issued in the summer of 2020. That ruling tried to resolve a four-year-long dispute over what utilities should pay private solar producers. Lauren Waldrip is executive director of the Arkansas Advanced Energy Association, which represents renewable energy installers, energy efficiency companies and clean energy contractors. She says the original rate structure is embedded in Arkansas Act 464 of 2019.
3: So currently through Act 464, a customer can generate all of his energy um, behind the meter through a personal solar array and then export any surplus energy that's not consumed back to the electric grid. So under the current method of net metering, which was uh, selected by the Arkansas Public Service Commission, if the net metering customer exports surplus energy uh, to the grid, the net metering customer is then given a credit that is done in kilowatt hours um, on their next bill. And then that one-to-one credit is used to offset their future usage. Um, So right now, that one-to-one rate structure can be grandfathered or frozen in time for a period of up to, to 20 years. Sometimes that grandfathering is automatic. Sometimes it's determined on a a case-by-case basis by the commission. That depends on the size of of the facility. Um, Another component that's notable is that customers can also aggregate multiple accounts and then use generation from a single net metering facility to offset each of those accounts.
2: Net metering is a way for domestic solar producers who lack large on-site battery power storage to bank excess produced energy for later use, for example, on cloudy days. Utilities have long sought to reduce the Public Service Commission's one-to-one net meter credit rate, which will for now remain in place, Waldrip says. I mean, this is
3: something that was certainly welcomed by by the industry. Uh, you know, I think, first of all, it helps us to enable long-term stable po- policy, uh, which includes the rate structures that we need in order to continue the, the adoption of these technologies. And, you know, that's a vital, that is a vital component to the continued investment in this space. And I think this is something that the court decision is something that, that recognizes that. So at the end of the day, this decision helps to render lower electric bills for Arkansans it solidifies Arkansas's role as a leader in advanced energy Uh, it enables our citizens to be more resilient they can produce their own power um, at this one-to-one rate Uh, and I think a a significant piece of this as well Jacqueline is the the economic development piece Um, and so this is good for jobs, and it's good um, to, to help this industry continue to grow.
2: Arkansas, Waldrip says, has some of the best net metering laws in the country, despite utilities pressing small solar producers to pay certain costs associated with transmission facilities operations.
3: Ultimately, utilities wanted to reduce the amount provided for electricity, which is put back on the grid by energy producers via solar arrays.
2: In this case, Waldrop is referring to Arkansas Electric Cooperative and Petty Jean Electric Cooperative of Clinton.
3: You know, in June of 2020, the PSC reserved the right for utilities to charge that grid fee and impose essentially an added charge um, if they were able to prove certain things, right? Specifically what you have just said, but we know today that no utility has been able to show an undue financial burden caused by solar users on customers who don't use solar. Uh, Solar customers do not shift additional costs onto their neighbors.
4: Uh,
3: On the contrary, they actually add value by helping to diversify our energy portfolio uh, and our sources uh, and, and produce power. So there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration between utilities and developers and also customers to address what could be seen as weaknesses or problems in the current system. Um, But the the ruling on net metering helps to keep that door open in a way that benefits Arkansas as a whole moving forward. So we really have to strike out these conversations of competition and what this really enables is collaboration.
2: With climate change and high energy bills, more Arkansans are investing in rooftop solar systems or ground arrays, taking advantage of federal and state tax incentives.
3: Any solar developer you talk to will be able to explain what those opportunities are. Um, you know, in the different uh, the different factors that might weigh into that and what the timelines are on those. Um, I would suggest talking to multiple solar developers, um, you know, if that is a conversation that that you want to explore. Um, But another conversation that is coming online, uh, because of some of the points you just mentioned in your question, Jacqueline, are this, uh, this piece of battery storage, and we know that batteries can help offset peak issues, um, and that's just another example of of a way that we can all work together to address some of the problems that are are in the system as it stands today.
2: Glenn Hooks, Arkansas Policy Manager for Audubon Delta, in an email for this report says the appeals court decision is fair, well-reasoned, and will help more kinds of solar systems to be approved in Arkansas. Wider deployment of solar power, he says, will reduce carbon inputs, improve air quality, lower electric bills, and provide clean energy jobs in Arkansas. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Governor Asa Hutchinson is defending
1: Arkansas's potential abortion laws, which would only permit abortion in order to save the life of the mother. His remarks were made on CNN Sunday. Hutchinson says making exceptions for rape or incest does not reflect the will of most Arkansans.
5: Those
6: are heartbreaking circumstances, and that's where In uh, the last few years, when we passed these trigger laws, we're expressing a a belief. Uh, We're trying to return that authority to the states and to reduce abortions. But whenever you see real-life circumstances like that, that debate is going to continue. And the will of the people may or may not change.
0: According to a document leaked from the U.S. Supreme Court, a majority of justices support overturning Roe v. Wade and want to return abortion-related decisions to state governments. Arkansas's abortion laws would be triggered into effect immediately if Roe is overturned. (laughs)
1: employed Arkansans increased last month though the state's jobless rate also saw a slight increase according to talk business and politics 4,500 more Arkansans were employed in April compared to March and the state added more than 34,000 jobs when compared to April 2021 however the jobless rate ticked upward from 3.1 percent in March to 3.2 percent in April but that's still well below the 4.5% unemployment rate recorded a year ago.
0: The Arkansas Razorbacks softball team will host an NCAA Super Regional for the second year in a row. The fourth-ranked Razorbacks defeated number 24 Oregon State at Bogle Park in Fayetteville Sunday, clinching the program's third Super Regional. Arkansas will face the winner of number 11 Washington and number 18 Texas this weekend at Bogle Park, but game dates and times are yet to be announced. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part,
7: by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two mainstage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky May 27th. Tickets and more at Artisphere Festival dot org.
1: This is Ozarks at Large. The eighth annual Benville Film Festival is gearing up for this June. One of the updates to this year's event is the scenery. The Momentary will host much of the festival's events. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke to Wendy Guerrero, the president of the Bentonville Film Foundation.
8: So our festival village will be down over in that new, beautiful area of the Momentary. And we will also do some screenings over there. That's where our opening night reception and opening night film will be. And a lot of our free movies will be down there at the Gina Davis Outdoor Movie Theater. So that'll be available to the public Thursday through Saturday of the June 21st through 26th.
9: The move to the momentary, does that feel significant for the film festival to move into, you know, the momentary is known as a contemporary art space. Does that feel like it it makes a difference to move into a more contemporary space?
8: I think it does, because when we first started the festival, there were no movie theaters in Bentonville at all. So we really had to create our own spaces and create our own movie theaters. And, you know, with that comes a big expense. And it also... You know, the momentary is a really amazing contemporary art space. We really want to lean into everything that our films have to offer, and a lot of them are showcasing, you know, art. So there's a lot of different. Films that we're bringing to the area, and it's really nice to be able to do that in such a modern space, and to bring our filmmakers and to Bentonville and to show to show them the the momentary is is a stunning addition to the festival. I think so. We're really excited. We will still have um, some programming and events down down off the square, which is where we originally were the last eight years. Um, but we're we're happy to be uh, in this new space and really taking advantage of the flow of how that's going to work for us.
9: Last year, there were some in-person things, but it was mostly limited to the filmmakers themselves. What do you expect to see from having attendees come to this in in addition to the filmmakers? How do you expect the energy to be different this year compared to last year with the limited uh, space?
8: I think the energy, everybody's ready to go out and do stuff. I know I certainly am. Um, we're going to have all of our filmmakers here as we normally would, you know, doing a Q&A after every screening. But we'll also be able to do some coffee talks at 830 in the morning, which will really focus on intimate conversations with some of our celebrities that we're bringing in. At 11 a.m. every day, we have panel conversations at our partnered uh, venue over at the Thaden School and then we'll be screening films all day from noon noon to midnight. So it's going to be nice to have our jurors also come in to travel. We have an illustrious jury. So we're really excited to bring them into Bentonville including, you know, some some of the actors that are coming in and they're all our Yolanda Ross who is on a show called The Chai. We also have a film and television producer Bird Running Water. Um, We have an actor, Shorey Agadashu, which was in one of my favorite films, House of Sand and Fog, like 15 years ago. She's an amazing actor. And then Justine Bateman, among many other people. So we're expecting a lot of appetite to come and hear conversations and and watch films.
9: Gina Davis is obviously well known for her activism towards underrepresented folks. Is that something that you prioritize when it comes to not just – uh, the sort of films that you that you show, but also the sort of jurists that you include, and in the and the things that you're looking for in the films that you bring to the film festival.
8: Yeah, I mean, I think Gina always says we want to reflect the world that we live in, right? So we're really looking at the stories that we bring into the festival uh, to be diverse and extremely you know, reflective of our population. And so we were one of the first festivals to really implement an inclusion questionnaire. (laughs) I know that sounds like a big word, but we want to know the data. So we want to know who's submitting to our festival and we want to know, um, you know, certain things if the writer, producer, or director is female or a person of color or from an underrepresented community. So we really try to curate a very balanced program that highlights uh, maybe stories and stories storytellers that don't really get the spotlight often. And we love that we're doing that in Bentonville.
9: Do you hear from folks who attend or are familiar with the festival who say, "Man, I didn't even know that I could do this. I didn't even know that I could like see someone who looked like me or had similar experiences to me that they identify themselves in those elements of the storytelling. Do you hear that from attendees of the festival?
8: We do. I mean, we we hear, you know, transformations happen in hearts and minds when with storytelling. And that's really the great thing about stories is that Gina Davis often says you can change the world overnight by just writing a story because you have all of the tools to create that world that we live in, that inclusive world. We just Want to reflect that into you know everything that we see, so people can see themselves in these stories. We we brought a film a couple years back that was starred Elle Fanning as a transgender um, character who was a youth. And we partnered with an organization called Common Sense Media. And we often partner with other organizations that can be supportive. Um, But we had people stand up in our audience during the Q&A and sort of share their experiences in their own families or in their own schools about, you know, people's friends maybe experiencing this. And it was a really deep conversation and people were really happy that they could See a film that kind of reflected what was going on in their lives, and know that they weren't so alone, and that there were resources for them to to you know understand that um, that story. On a personal
9: level, did you ever uh, do you remember like a distinct moment in your life, maybe as a child, maybe as a you know <laughs> as an adolescent, of 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 having that like aha moment that like oh I could I could maybe do this.
8: Yeah, we call it that see-it-be-it moment. Like when I interview people, I always ask that question, like what was your see-it-be-it moment? I think mine is not as inspiring as uh, a lot of people's, but I think coming from a diverse background myself, my father's Mexican and my mother is English, so I've always explored identity. I've always wondered why that was important to people and why I always got questions about my own identity identity. Like, where are you from? Or, you know, people. No, where are you
9: really from? Yeah.
8: Like people (laughs) thinking I'm not American and I didn't understand that as a child. So my see it be it moment was really, was really that, that was my journey of like discovering identity and how you can feel like you belong to a number of different communities, you know? And I think as a country, we're going through that now and just, the opportunity to be able to present these types of films at a festival is kind of like my full circle moment because i really didn't feel myself reflected back in you know the stuff that i was watching on tv or or in film because there wasn't a lot of stories about mixed race girls so i think it's really important to see yourself validated if you see yourself Being in the media, you feel like your story is just as powerful and and important as anyone else's. But I I do think that... That see it, be it moment, everybody has it, and I think it's a it's an interesting question, so thank you for asking.
9: Yeah, see it, be it moment. I like that. I haven't heard it phrased that way before. I like that. The festival recently opened their volunteer applications. How can people get involved in the festival in some way, shape, or form if they want to?
8: Well, we would love for people to volunteer. Um, we have a lot of shifts available. They can sign up on our website and we'll be doing a very special luncheon uh, that kicks off the festival for all of, our vo- all of our volunteers. So we'll have some special guests there, you know, maybe a message from Gina. So we would love um, for you if you have extra time or you haven't um, don't know much about the festival yet. If you're new to town, I think volunteering would be a really fun way to get access and, you know, to just to, to to experience um, the festival.
9: And to manifest your own see it, be at it moment.
8: Exactly. You'll have your own see it, be at it moment. Wendy Guerrero is the
1: president of the Bentonville Film Foundation. She recently spoke to Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore.
3: Y'all gonna just stand around or you wanna ask me some questions? You,
10: you worked for Martha Mitchell's husband? Yeah. She's completely insane. Loud no, mouth. No.
6: She's
4: a truth teller.
10: Unreliable. I love her.
4: You don't know me.
6: I told you, no more interviews.
4: It's a ladies' magazine. I will say how I feel, and if that gets me banned off Air Force One, I will fly commercial. So you were banned from Air Force One. <laughs> You're good.
1: You can
6: just keep your mouth shut. We'll be fine.
4: If the American people knew half of what I do, they wouldn't have much to approve of.
6: The loudmouth wife of his was becoming too much of a liability.
10: This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Daniel Carruth, and you were listening to the trailer for the stars streaming series called Gaslit, starring Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. If you don't know, it's about the Nixon-Watergate scandal of the 70s, as seen through the eyes of Martha Mitchell, wife of then U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell, who was one of the first to be caught up in the Watergate scandal. Roberts plays Martha, and Sean Penn plays John. And joining me in the role of guest today is Randy (laughs) Dixon from the... Hello, Daniel. uh, ...from the Pryor Center for Oral and Visual History. Thanks for joining me today. Why are we talking about Martha Mitchell? Well, as a matter of fact, the
6: real Martha Mitchell's from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. All right. And um, she was, you know, a small-town girl in the big city married to a rich attorney, John Mitchell, ended up going they were in New York uh where he was a successful Manhattan attorney and uh became a cabinet member for Richard Nixon they moved to DC and uh she would come back to Arkansas from time to time and she would give one of her famous
10: interviews, yeah. and that's what she was famous for. Yeah, she was known for, being, for talking to the press a lot, much to the chagrin of, of Richard Nixon and her husband.
6: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Everybody in the White House, really, <laughs> uh, they, they called
10: her the Mouth of
6: the South. <laughs> and she certainly, she had that Arkansas accent, from girl from Pine Bluff. And, uh, yes, yeah, she was definitely the Mouth of the South. And she would grant these interviews that she was very open about uh, being critical of the Nixon administration and then – well, and then later on the whole Watergate thing. Right. Uh, And she was right in the middle of that. But that's what caused uh, more of the
10: controversy
6: around her.
10: Right. And so what's this first uh, clip that we're going to hear from her?
6: KTV, being the hometown television station, yeah. uh, Jim Pitcock, news director and reporter at the time, uh, set up an interview to go to Washington and interview her. This was about a year before the break-in. So this was about 70, 71, and— um, she actually lived with her husband in a penthouse in the Watergate <laughs> uh, complex. Wow. So there were there were a lot of hoops to jump through, and we'll hear about that later. But Jim Pitcock set up uh, at their penthouse in the D.C. area, and um, first he just asked her some basic questions. She really liked talking about Arkansas and Pine Bluff. But here he asked her about the image that uh, her husband had. Some say that your husband, the Attorney General, is the second most powerful man in Washington. Could you tell us what he's really like?
4: As I've often said, I think he's the greatest man that's living. Uh, And um, he is a man whose image has been built up which is completely uh, the opposite of what he is like. He's been made to look like this mean, wicked man that never smiles, that uh, he has a certain set idea down the line of law and order. All of these things about him are absolutely untrue. And it's the opposition that have tried to build up this attitude of my husband. My husband is sweet, he's charming, he has more wit and personality, and every time he goes out, people just love him.
10: That was Jim Pitcock talking to Martha Mitchell in the 1970s, Um, so... Tell us a little bit. You talked to him about that interview. What did he have to say about going to visit? Them? Well, it was a pretty involved process.
6: Um, he f- just, he called the justice department and kind of out of the blue and asked about an interview and they did background checks and, um, approved the interview and, uh, Jim and a photographer, Jim Casey, flew to D.C., and they were brought into the building by, I guess, the Secret Service or whoever her government handlers were at the time, and taken up. uh, They got there early. They got there about noon, and they got set up. And waited, and she came out, but she was still in her morning clothes, I guess you would call it a robe (laughs) and nightgown, that sort of thing. Didn't have makeup, and she talked, was very pleasant, very nice, but she wanted to go get ready for the interview, so she was gone for about three hours and came back. But here's how Jim sort of describes uh, the experience. So she came out and just looked like a million dollars. Had her
11: hair done, and, and she said, "So, what do y'all think of it? She had on a—I don't recall what kind of dress it was, but uh, she said, well, "So, what do you think of this?" And uh, so, someone did care for. Her. She said, "Okay, let me let me go change." So she went back, and and uh, she must have changed two or three times until. They finally got something that everybody agreed really looked like a million dollars. So by 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 then it was probably three o'clock, maybe three thirty. We had been there two or three hours, and you know we wanted to do the interview. So she uh, she sat down, and she said, "So what do you want to ask me?" So we started talking, and I said, "Well." Tell me about growing up in Pine Bluff, and tell me this, and tell me that. And again, she was just delightful. She could not have been nicer. And toward the end of the interview, second half of the interview, I asked her a question, just an innocent question that uh, you know anybody was going to ask. And I said, well... I said, so uh, what do you want to do? And she paused for a minute. And she said, uh, I would like to be, I think I would like to be, and I'm paraphrasing here. She said, "I, I think I would like to be the Secretary of State. And I, I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe what he just said.
6: So um, I guess we ought to just play that part of the interview that yeah. he was talking about that just it sort of shocked him, and then what happened after
10: that. Let's hear that interview with Martha Mitchell.
4: Well, a lot of people are always asking me if I'd like to run for office. No, I have no desire, nor does my husband, as far as politics are concerned. But I have two things I'd like to do, and that's beautification of the city of Washington, number one, and number two, recently I've gotten a desire to work in the State Department. I would like to better the relations of America with the other nations of the world, to try to put a little love into the world instead of at each other's throats. And I resent the fact that America is not looked upon as a beautiful, wonderful country. I really enjoy the foreigners in in Washington. And just talking to them, um, the idea all of a sudden struck me. Gee, wonder if I could ever do anything to promote the goodwill of the country.
6: Okay, so there she was talking about working at the State Department. And after the interview, Jim went to ABC, the news bureau there in D.C., And uh, had the film. They shot film then. And ABC was very interested in using the interview. So they processed the film that night, overnight, and used it the next day on the national news broadcast about her wanting to be in the State Department. As a matter of fact, uh, after Watergate happened, she was probably the first insider, I guess you would say, that uh talked about it and talked to several uh reporters in the in the press about it. She accused them of all kinds of crazy things um holding her hostage yeah. uh, and drugging her so she wouldn't speak to the press It was while it was after her husband John had gone back to d c uh they were out in California, yeah. And she also accused them throughout that time of um, smearing her reputation, her character as uh, being a a drunk and a drug addict and just to discredit her. Um, And so she continued to talk uh, about Nixon and Watergate and the cover-up And even after um, Nixon's resignation and Ford's pardon, she continued to talk about it. And she did here in another KTV interview when she came back to Pine Bluff in 74. Do you think there was some kind of deal worked out in advance of the resignation?
12: I
13: do indeed. I'm certain Mr. Ford wouldn't be in the White House. And I don't care if Jerry ever speaks to me again. But I'm sure that there was a deal worked out with Mr. Nixon before he left.
12: What would you recommend in this case? Did you want Mr. Nixon to be convicted or tried?
13: I hadn't come to a conclusion on that. I I was waiting for public opinion to come around to a polarization. Uh, I don't know what the American people would like in a situation like this, but it's not fair for him to be given amnesty and the other people serve jail terms.
12: Do you expect amnesty to be granted to the other, other uh, end?
13: Uh, well, the way it looks now, no, unless uh, American public opinion comes around to that.
12: What about the sense of timing, uh, granting pardon before a man even goes to, to trial?
13: Well, that just shows his guilt.
12: What about rumors of, of his ill health and and indebtedness since he's left office? That, do you think they had a major was a major factor in the case?
13: Well, I think if Mr. Ford hadn't granted him pardon, uh, they would have gone along with his illness as a means of escape.
12: Are you bitter at all about this?
13: Extremely so.
12: Would you expand on that a little bit?
13: I just don't think it's a great policy to set for this country when we've had the most tragic situation it's ever been in the history and um, I just don't like the precedent that's been set.
12: Do you actually think then that uh, President Nixon was guilty?
13: I've always more or less said that.
12: What do you think now that President Ford is president? Is the country going to right itself now? Do we have Watergate behind us?
13: We'll never have Watergate behind us, I hope, because in a way it's been good. We're teaching the politicians to be straight and not crooked.
10: Martha Mitchell, in an interview with KATV in Pine Bluff there. So John and
6: Martha separated, and John was eventually convicted for his part in the scandal, and he ended up serving 19 months uh, in prison. Uh, Then Martha uh, fell ill with cancer, and – Died just some months later after that interview. Um, And from what I understand, she was alone and broke. Yeah. And died in, I believe, in New York in a hospital. Uh, But she was buried in Pine Bluff, and her uh, funeral made national news. And here's a report from ABC's Ron Miller.
5: Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Martha Bell Mitchell's hometown. At first glance, it appears to be an unlikely beginning for an urbane and controversial lady who became a national celebrity. Those who remember her, attending parties in these gracious homes, say she was a traditional southern belle. Almost like a character out of Golden with the Wind, says her close friend, Ray West. Martha was very moralistic and, and very definitely had a feeling about right and wrong and i'm sure that probably played a very big part in her speaking out as she did because she saw wrong and she felt it was her obligation to bring it to the forefront the cotton belt railroad runs right through pine bluff and past her former home on elm street mrs mitchell recently sold the place to bob Abbott. it makes me sad to, to feel like that uh, she did die alone it, it hurts to know uh, no one seemed to care. 600 people attended Mrs. Mitchell's funeral at the Presbyterian Church. Her husband, convicted Watergate conspirator John Mitchell, and their daughter Marty, along with a son from a previous marriage, attended the funeral. Newsmen were kept away from Mitchell. Mrs. George Wallace was the only public personality to attend. President and Mrs. Ford sent flowers. Mrs. Mitchell was eulogized as one who hoped to improve society, but found even great cities have imperfections. She was buried near her close relatives. Again, the service was simple. Perhaps not surprisingly, there was a bit of controversy, even at Mrs. Mitchell's grave, where Flowers, synonymously, maintained that the lady who first spoke out on Watergate was right. Ron Miller, ABC News, Pine Bluff, Arkansas.
10: And that funeral was in 1976?
6: 76, yes, in Pine Bluff. Wow. And he is referring to uh, some flowers. Yes, yeah. At the very end of that piece, you see a shot of a funeral spray. And in white chrysanthemums, it says Martha was right at her funeral. So I guess she ended up getting the last word. There you go. Anyway.
10: Posthumously.
6: But there's actually, um, you know, to add some merit to her, I guess, you know, the White House wanted to call it ravings. Mm-hmm. Um, and her accusations, there, there's, a, I guess you'd call it a mental health condition or. Yeah, uh, the Martha
10: Mitchell effect.
6: That's yes. What, yeah. yeah, there's actually her. a name for it. And it's. Basically, well, here's here's the definition that I looked up. It said the Marshall uh, Mitchell effect is when a medical professional labels a patient's accurate perception of real events as delusional, resulting in misdiagnosis. Well, in other words, yep. they they gaslighted her. Yeah, and. Uh, are you familiar with that expression, yes, being gaslit? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the name of the series, yeah. but it came from a 1944 movie with Ingrid Bergman that the whole plot is—and uh, I think it's Charles Boyer—makes it her think she's crazy right. when she's not, which is being gaslit, yeah. or, it's and thus the name of the movie, Gaslight, yeah. and the
10: Martha Mitchell effect, which is— Making you think you're crazy. Yeah. Leading you to believe everything that's true is, is a lie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so what's uh, – after you kind of dug, dug into this and, and learned a little bit about Martha Mitchell, uh, what do you think? What How do you feel about all of this?
6: Well, um, I think there's a lot to be said uh, for her credibility. Yeah. Plus and minus – uh, you know, being two sides to every story, but I, you know, I think she like like the funeral wreath said Martha was right. Yeah, I think she was to 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 most of the extent, and there was probably some exaggeration to it too. All right. Well, an interesting story and some uh, some good interviews there. Well, thanks, and I'm I'm still working on next
10: week. I'm not sure what we'll do, but. How, do we have two more weeks? I think we've got two more weeks before before Kyle comes back. Okay. So, Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. Pick the most fun stuff for me. Okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. It's great to be here, Daniel, and I'll see you next week. Sounds good. See you next week. Okay. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part,
7: by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is giving away two VIP tickets to the Her Set, Her Sound Festival, June 3rd and 4th at Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound Festival features all women and gender-diverse DJs and cultural artists. VIP tickets give access to both nights, as well as the official after-party, food, drinks, and more. The winner will be announced on Friday, June 3rd, during the noon edition of Ozarks
0: at Large kuaf.com for more information and to enter the giveaway. This is Ozarks at Large. The 2021-22 Fort Smith Symphony season is over, but preparations for the next season, the symphony's 99th, are well underway. John Jetter, music director and conductor for the Fort Smith Symphony, recently discussed the upcoming season with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums.
14: We're very proud to be one of really a handful of orchestras, I think about 10%, uh, mm-hmm. that actually did all of our concerts live to all of our, our live audiences during the pandemic. And of course, we had all, you can imagine the parameters you know, that we had to go through and working with the Department of Health, and we just had great support. So, thinking about the current season that's really just wrapping up for us, uh, there were sort of still those pandemic issues, but we had learned so much from the previous year. And things have, things have grown, have started to return a little bit more to, uh, I would say, normal. And uh, there's things from uh, the COVID experience that actually are, are sticking for, uh, you know, like next season. Things like our concert programs are no longer paper. Uh, we, it's all on the phone now. And we've actually uh, have been very uh, involved in kind of helping develop that. I don't want to say that technology, but the formats and all that with the company. Uh, that's, I think, going to be one of the leaders in this for orchestras. And I notice other orchestras are now considering doing this, which is kind of a a cool thing. Things like um, with with COVID, we had the uh, forced opportunity to say no more intermission. And sure enough, we're all really liking that. So I don't know if we will ever go back to an intermission unless the concerts are very long. And as we move forward, I think it's going to be, you know, there are some positives uh, looking at kind of having more of a, really gave us an opportunity to look at, you know, what does the 21st century orchestra look like? Because the orchestra, the orchestra world doesn't change very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. So we're excited um, to, to move forward to the 2022-23 season. That's the orchestra's 99th season. Yeah.
7: That makes you probably in the upper echelon of older... Continuously operating symphonies yeah, west of the so.
14: Mississippi. I think so. Yeah. yeah, we're the oldest orchestra in the state, uh, yeah. for sure. And yeah, we've been around for a long time. And uh, of course, this this ninety season is. We see it as part of that transition from getting back on our feet from COVID to our hundredth anniversary year. So this is kind of a building. And we've really uh, – I think we have a, a great season of uh, – uh, our audiences are very excited about it. I would say it's a little more different than some of the things we've done in the past. But we've done some really uh, – we have some really great things in store. Um, I can go through, Let's go through the concert. Let's do it. Uh, I think um, we, we're really doing what I would consider only one – super traditional classical program, and that's our season opener on September 10th. But even that, we're uh, opening with a piece by Max Richter, his uh, On the Nature of Daylight, and uh, a lot of people know who Max Richter is, a lot of people don't, but he's one of the most popular uh, concert composers now and uh, On the Nature of Daylight is just a, a beautiful piece. If, you, if someone does bumper music for this uh, interview and they do On the Nature of Daylight, everyone's going to be at the concert. The Haydn, uh, cello concerto with uh, Tess Crowther Kra- as uh, cello soloist. Tess is a member of the orchestra, a terrific player. And uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony, which is very standard fare. However, uh, we'll come back to... Well, I think people will notice uh, the reason for Dvorak Uh, But I will just say that, uh, of course, he's uh, the great Czech composer. Dvorak spent time in America. And what he told American composers was the secret for music in America is to look at the music of indigenous people in your country, look at the music of uh, uh, the black community you know, you know in, in our country, and try to use those slave song- songs, the uh, Native American music. Try to incorporate that into your concert music. So uh, we changed gears totally to our second concert on October 15th. Which I think you created this theme maybe for me. The the superheroes yeah, Oh, yeah. Yeah, symphonic superheroes. Yeah, I love this music. I absolutely love it. Uh, Music from Captain America, Robin Hood, Mission Impossible 3, Batman The Dark Knight, uh, Black Panther Suite, Iron Man Suite, The Amazing Spider Man, X Men Suite, uh, Wonder Woman Suite, and Transformers. Cool thing about it is two days later, we do our Earquake Schools concerts, and we're just gonna have that's gonna be their orchestra experience through the years, all this live film music. What we continue, we've talked about this before, uh, our focus is presenting orchestral music. Yeah. And not we don't – we a lot of times uh, for interviews, I don't even talk about – I don't use the word classical. It's not that there's anything wrong with it, but right. it's about, it's about um, the, the greatness of a bunch of people playing in an orchestra. And whether they're playing a symphonic uh, rock concert or jazz right. or classics, that's the cool thing for me. And I have to say uh, that's not a, a marketing ploy. That is a genuine, honest – that's where I'm at. And I think that's where our organization is at, and we love it. And uh, I think it's real healthy. And uh, think of all the music that's out there, all those genres. And when an orchestra does it, it's great. Yes. So we move on uh, to our holiday concert in December. That's always hugely popular. We uh, did a number of new, uh, performed a number of new Christmas arrangements last Christmas. Man, the audience just, they always loved the holiday concert, but wow. So we're working with the same uh, featuring music by uh, the same arranger, uh, different new pieces. And I'm really looking forward to to Christmas. Our next classics in March, we call uh, it—the title of that concert is What a Rush (laughs) because one of the pieces is called Rush. It's a, a saxophone concerto. Uh, by Ken Fuchs and uh, American Composer. It was written in uh, 2012, and it's a very um, jazz, almost Sinatra-y-inspired concerto. Uh, Damien Cheek is uh, our soloist. Damien is the saxophone instructor at uh, University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, a terrific guy. And interestingly enough, he's also one of our staff members at the symphony. Really? Oh, yeah. 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 So he's a, he's a jack of all trades, but I mean he's a terrific player. We're, we're really excited to feature him. We're doing a piece by Christina Spinet called "Whirl," which is a really cool piece for a string orchestra on the, on the same program. And then we're an American orchestra, folks, so we like to do a lot of American music. And we're performing uh, Howard Hanson Symphony Number no. Two, which is one of the great American symphonies. Yep. So really thrilled. Um, after that. Is an outdoor concert again, um, with COVID we've been giving some outdoor concerts, and audiences have been saying, "We absolutely love this. Can you do this every year?" so we're giving an outdoor concert on April 1st at, on the uh, campus of University of Arkansas Fort Smith on, on the, the green. green. Yes, oh, perfect yeah. and uh, that's it's a, it's a real mixed bag of uh, music. we're still working through it. I think it's going to be a blast. I think there'll be a lot of other components to this concert so that'll be a lot of fun and I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. We're also starting a perspectives, perspectives Chamber Music series that's kind of to-be-determined uh, locations and times. I think we're going to do it in three different locations, and um, we're really excited about that. We have some really neat music Fun. planned for that. So all that said, uh, our, our season-closer concert is, I think, quite an experience, and that's going to be uh, on April 22nd. We are doing a concert featuring the music of Lewis Ballard. Mm. We're doing five works of his, um, Incident at Wounded Knee, Scenes from Indian Life, The Four Moons, The Devil's Promenade, and a piece called Fantasy Aborigine Number 3. Lewis Ballard is recognized as the first— Native American concert composer. His uh, his dates, I keep forgetting, 1931 to, yes, he passed away in 2007. He was born in, I know how to pronounce this, Miami, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. spelled like Miami. And uh, he's very significant in the history of concert music, in the history of uh, Native American culture. And there's a lot uh, uh, in common uh, incorporated into the region, our region, you know, and uh, it's a real exciting project that we're doing. We're performing his music. We're working with uh, the Ballard family. And um, the cool thing is, as we've done with Florence Price and William Grant Still, after the concert for the next the two days uh, after that, we're going to be recording all this music for Noxos. Oh, my. And I think it's the first time anything— any. Uh, all-orchestral recording an all-orchestral project has been recorded of a Native American composer where the whole I think the whole disc is orchestral music Wow, I think so and if I'm wrong I apologize someone can prove me wrong but certainly of a historic Native American concert composer. I think it's the first thing of its kind. And we're going to be uh, – three of the pieces are being uh, – uh, par- score and parts are being created at, uh, via the Fleischer collection in Philadelphia. So uh, these aren't world premiere performances, but they're uh, the first time for most of these pieces in you know a couple of decades. It's exciting, and, yeah. It's very exciting, and I can tell you, since we're we're on we're we're on NPR talking right now, uh, as you know, uh, I've had uh, the opportunity to have many 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 interviews uh, about Florence Price all over the country. I mean, mm-hmm. I do it here in Fort Smith, but radio stations all over, and a lot of times the discussion, uh, of course, is about diversity in in music, and uh, a lot of African American composers are being featured in on you know in the concert halls now we're starting to address that it could be better, but we 're working on it. The discussion is okay, we need to be talking about perhaps the indigenous people absolutely so it's kind of the next thing that needs to be done, and I'm thrilled that we're going to be doing this in a big way uh, in addition. Uh, to being an excellent composer, Ballard was a painter, so there's that aspect that we're going to be exploring. He also uh, created a terrific, very inclusive, all-encompassing elementary uh, music education method, curriculum. And uh, we are hopeful to have elements of that put in to be used by uh, the Fort Smith Public School uh, program and some other schools. And what we're going to try to do by doing that is to jumpstart that curriculum, hopefully having a life uh, in our schools nationally. Because really, you know, diversity in, in education is what we're looking for, right, in diversity in music education. So it's perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's his um, method of music education is all based on Native American songs.
1: John Jetter is the music director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony. More details about next season can be found at fortsmithsymphony.org. He spoke with Ozarks at Largest Kyle Kellums in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio.
7: Everything you hear on KUAF is available to you on the radio, through your computer, maybe a smart device, every day of the year. There is no subscription fee or restricted access based on a listener's ability to pay for it. The reality is that it is listeners like you who willingly contribute that enables KUAF to be available for everyone. During the month of June, KUAF is raising money to keep the programming we all rely on available to everyone in our listening community. Our goal is to raise $50,000, and your gift today, by June 30th, will help us get there. Please give right now at
0: supportkuaf.com. Thank you. The Beaver Watershed Alliance is seeking volunteers to help during an invasive plant removal at Lake Atalanta and Rogers this Friday, May 27th, 3 to 5 p.m. Volunteers will be instructed on how to identify highly invasive shrubs as well as methods for removal. Check-in takes place at Clark Pavilion at Lake Atalanta. To reserve a spot to help, you can visit beaverwatershedalliance.org.
1: The Pups for Peace Dog Walk takes place from 10 a.m. to noon, June 4th at Gully Park in Fayetteville. This is a fundraising event for the Candy Clark Pet Sanctuary, a collaboration with Peace at Home Family Shelter to help victims of domestic violence leave abusive situations with their pets. The Humane Society reports that a majority of survivors say their partners have abused or even killed their family pet. All proceeds from the Pups for Peace Dog Walk will go towards this effort. For more peaceathomeshelter.org.
0: This is your public radio station, KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Sulphur Springs. 91.3 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis.
1: And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Contributors to today's show included Jacqueline Froelich, Kyle Kellums, Matthew Moore, and Daniel Kruth. Special thanks to Randy Dixon from the Prior Center for stopping by and giving us another dip into the Prior Center archives. Pete Harmon is KUAF's operations manager, and additional content for today's show came from the hardworking news team at KUAR public radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah and it's written
0: and performed by Daryl Sean. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. for another brand new edition of Daily Ozarks at Large. Until then, have yourself a great day, be well, and we'll talk again soon.